Hi, everyone. Welcome to Indie Art Today. I'm Anthony Piccioni, and thank you for listening to episode 53 of our podcast. We're glad to be back after a brief summer hiatus for the past two weeks. To those of you out there who are just joining us for the first time today, please be sure to follow us on whichever streaming platform you may be listening to us on, as well as on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Indie Art Today. We air new episodes every Monday featuring conversations with a wide range of different artists across different artistic mediums. So, if you like today's episode, please do stick around for more afterwards. For those of you who have been listening and have been enjoying this podcast, please consider showing your support by heading to our Anchor page and making a small donation. Our podcast is free to the public, and it always will be, but any donations we receive will help promote the podcast to a larger audience. If you can't donate this time, no worries. You can also show your support by sharing this episode and any other episodes you enjoy with friends, family, and acquaintances who may be interested. As always, we appreciate any support that we receive from you, our listeners. So, I'm really eager to talk to my guest today because this is someone who has dedicated her life and career to a topic that is very near and dear to my heart, which is neurodiversity, specifically in the context of representation in live theater. Throughout her career, Jenna Lorenko has played many roles in the theater industry, including, but not limited to, the role of actor, writer, director, producer, dramaturge, dialect coach, and now as a professor and scholar whose research focuses on the importance of neurodiverse voices in the industry. I first came across her website earlier this year while searching for such examples myself, and I was delighted to come across a database, the likes of which I hadn't ever found before, featuring playwrights and plays written by autistic playwrights within the past several years. Full disclosure, one of my own plays happens to be on that database, by the way, but there are plenty of others by other playwrights on that list that are worth learning about. And since it's not every day that I get to have a discussion with someone who is this passionate about this topic, and since I always want to learn more about my own peers in the industry who have written about it, I reached out as quick as I could to Jenna to see if she'd be interested in coming on the podcast to discuss her work more in depth. And to my delight, as the title of this episode may have given away, she accepted my invitation and is now here to talk about her work with us today. So, Jenna, as I was saying, it's nice to virtually meet you, and I appreciate you taking the time to come talk with us on the podcast today. Thank you. Thank you for asking me. This is, as I said before, it's very exciting to me to have the opportunity to have this discussion with you. Uh, yeah. It is something that I'm very passionate about, and um, it, it was something that I was surprised when I went to to uh, start the research that no one had created that kind of database before. Yeah, and yeah, and I'm, I really do wanna get into that and what led you to all this impressive work you're doing. But um, before we get into that, I was wondering, um, I said a bit about the work you've done before, but I was wondering if we could hear in your own words, just like what inspired you to go into theater? What led you to this point in your career? And I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about yourself. Sure. Well, it's really hard to say what led me to start doing theater because I've been doing it since I was a very small child. Um, it's something that was a very big part of my family experience. In fact, my cousins and I used to put on plays in my grandparents' basement um, whenever we would get together for big holidays. And uh, both myself and one of my cousins work professionally in the performing arts. Uh, my cousin is more involved in the movie and film industry and my focus has generally been in the theater. Um, I really just have just always spent 
time doing theater. I, I don't remember a time in my life when I didn't do theater for very long. And um, it seemed a very natural fit to make that my major in college and then to continue that work. I've worked as a costume designer. I've worked as a performer. Um, I, I've done nearly every job except maybe lighting designer. Um, <laughs> and sound designer. but you're almost there you almost got but there I'm almost there I mean and I've taken courses in those so if like in a pinch I had to do them I suppose I could um although I would defer to many of my colleagues who are much much more um well versed in those fields if possible and the thing that um really I think for me has made theater so um so important to me is that I didn't realize this until I was an adult, but I am also an autistic person. And I learned how to um, present myself in expected ways through theater. And I learned how to identify patterns of behavior and predict what other people would do through my experiences with theater. And so I guess in effect, I learned to mask by doing theater, which is a very controversial thing among autistic people. There's a, a lot of discussion over whether we should be dropping our masks um, more or not. I'm not sure if I could even do that at this point. To be honest with you, I've been doing it so long. Um, I feel that. But, um, but it allowed me to exist in a neurotypical world. My, my theater training allowed me to be an active part of the world around me and to, um, to present stories and narratives, which I feel are the way in which we create a shared cultural narrative, which is how we create um, a feeling of camaraderie in a culture, how we create a feeling of a shared history and a shared goal. Um, all of these things which just make us feel like we belong to each other are part of why theater has existed for thousands of years. And while it's been tricky over the last couple of years uh, with the pandemic, even then it didn't completely disappear and it will never disappear, I think, because it's too important to how we define ourselves and how we um, push ourselves to grow in the future. Mm. Absolutely, and um, you said that you yourself are on the spectrum. Do you mind me asking when you were first diagnosed? I'm not diagnosed. I'm a okay. self-identified autistic person. Um, okay. And I realize that that's also a controversial identity to some, um, mm -hmm. but both of my children have been diagnosed and other members of my family have been diagnosed. I hope to seek diagnosis at some point in the future, but, um, it hasn't been accessible to me and, until, uh, and, and still technically isn't. I'm, I even tried to get diagnosed during the pandemic, um, knowing that I was going to be doing all of this writing and, um, and working on these things and figuring, I know this is who I am, but other people will want proof. And I was told because of the um, intensity of the pandemic that all adult, Diagnosed, diagnostic processes were being 
completely and totally suspended wow. uh, until further notice. And I, I'm hoping at some point in the future that I can manage it, but I also know that my health insurance will not cover it. So that's also um, a significant barrier for many people to getting a diagnosis. Yeah, I mean, I've heard, I you know, cause like I, I'm on the, these basic Facebook message boards quite a bit and like something I hear a lot about, which I think is a tragedy is that there aren't the resources for people who want to get diagnosed, who want to get maybe even if they are diagnosed, like maybe like mental health care that they might need or educational resources if they're younger that they might need. Like it really is a shame, but you you picked it up because um, of your kids, like that you maybe shared similar traits. Am I getting that right? Yeah, no, I basically realized that when my children were being diagnosed, I was sitting there going, wait, that's a sign of autism. That's a behavior that's autistic. And going back through my own childhood and my own life and going, check, check, check. And having an enormous list of things that, um, you know, until I started doing the research and the reading, I didn't know were autistic behaviors. Most people still don't know that they're autistic behaviors. And, you know, it was, it was a huge surprise to me to realize this, but um, when my second child was diagnosed, um, I just kind of came to the conclusion that I really couldn't keep denying the, what was right in front of me any longer. And although I didn't really come out publicly at the time, uh, that's only been something that I've been starting to do very recently. Um, and it's mostly because I feel like I have something to offer and I want to offer it from my autistic perspective mm. because I feel that that authenticity is important. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we need, like, I, th I think you'd wholeheartedly agree with me when I say that, like, you know, like, I think, you know, because I, I noticed my name in your research. Thank you, by the way. Um, I myself am an autistic playwright, so I think very strongly that we need more of these voices. We need more representation. But um, yeah, and I, I wanted to ask you, like, what led you to focus on this? Like, what was? Do you remember the moment that led you to focus specifically on this in your research? Because I know you were focused primarily on Irish drama. I know in your academic research. So I was wondering, like, if you can pinpoint the moment for us when you decided, okay, I have two autistic kids chances are I'm on the spectrum myself, like where this is what I want to dedicate my career to at this point. Yeah, you know, it was funny. I was actually, this was about 10 years ago, I was doing my first master's degree and I actually wanted to do my first master's thesis on the topic that I did my second master's thesis. But the reason I couldn't do it for the first one 10 years ago is because the scripts weren't available to, there weren't enough scripts out there that were, you know, cause this was 2009 to 2011 when I did my first master's degree, that there just weren't enough scripts out there that dealt with an autistic character or um, you knew that the playwright was autistic in any, like there weren't those resources widely and openly available at the time. And so um, it's funny because right around 2009, that's when the whole, um, the concept of the epidemic of autism was becoming a big thing in the news. The, uh, and the, the, the Wakefield study that has since been 
thoroughly debunked about the potential uh, correlations between um, between vaccines and autism has been debunked but it, in 2009 that's when it was like really hitting yeah. um, a resurgence actually it wasn't the first time it came out but it was hitting a resurgence in the media at that time and that's when you start to see new plays um, and an, a large increase of plays with autism in the storylines with an autistic character being written by the playwright and it's really not even until about 2015 that you start to see openly autistic playwrights being produced and published. It's not that there weren't people before that, it's that their work either wasn't openly known to be by an autistic person or that um, it wasn't getting all the way through the publication and production process. Mm. Um, so, and of course, you know this too, the vastness of the English language theatrical canon means that although I have been spending quite a lot of time searching for things, I always keep finding more and more and more the more I search. So the patterns that I'm currently seeing could, they, they reflect what I know to be true. They, they reflect what the materials that I've been able to locate. So I'm hoping that that is and in fact the pattern, but I, it will take me probably many more years to establish that pattern as factual beyond a, you know, a reasonable doubt. Uh, I hope that makes sense. <laughs> no, I think it does. Um, that, that actually made me think of something like without, without presuming anything is factual or not, like this is all just theory we're going to, because you mentioned 2015 is when there was sort of, I guess, a, a surge, I guess you could use that word in like, more playwrights who are autistic writing about this topic like because like and it was fascinating to me like looking at your website like how many others were out there who were doing this like I was wondering like what's your theory so to speak on like why at this point in time like despite like these vac these crazy vaccine theories despite I think we're on the same page on this judging by your work that like organizations like Autism Speaks out there perpetuating bad stereotypes like what made you think that despite all that now we're starting to see more of this trend like because like was there like any one production or play you noticed or was there like a moment outside of the theater industry like just without going to like factual stuff like if you had to yeah, guess I, I think the first play that i knew of that had been written by an openly autistic playwright as I was starting this search and remembering that I come from an Irish theater background was actually the 2020 production of What I Don't Know About Autism by oh, yeah. Jodie O'Neill. I and saw I that, chance, yeah. I mean, I, I didn't see it personally, but I heard, I read it, yeah. Yeah, it was only produced in Dublin and it actually closed like a week before the pandemic, shut everything down in Dublin. Um, but that play, for me was one of the first pieces of, okay, this person is out there saying, yes, I'm an autistic playwright. And I had seen other plays, but I kept finding, you know, plays that were not necessarily by someone who was saying, yes, I'm autistic. Um, and so that was kind of a first for me. And then I started looking, I was, I was literally actively looking online going, are there any other 
openly autistic playwrights out there and I found your name and, and your website and I was able to order your scripts uh, from your um, from your uh, publisher online. Sorry, I had to read through those. I'm kidding, but. No, it was actually really great to find that like that someone was publishing you, you know, you. and and that they were available online. So I didn't have to even um, I didn't have to wait. And, you know, however long the pandemic mail would have taken to get them to me. Mm -hmm. um, and all of this was like I'm in the midst of my um, Master of Fine Arts program and I'm doing it, it fairly quickly. Uh, I, you know, I literally went through this program in, in three semesters. Mm -hmm. And so really trying to like get every, and it was all during the pandemic. I was literally in school from May, 2020 to May, 2021. So um, my resources were very limited. What could I get online? What could I get shipped to me? What could I get digitally? And, um, and so that's probably also limited a little bit of what I've been able to find. It is, it was to me surprising to find um, that originally I'd found about six openly autistic playwrights. I've since found a couple more mm -hmm. that I'm starting to try to get the material. I try to not put things on until I've had a chance to like um, check things out and clarify that someone is one openly saying about themselves. Like I don't want to like out someone as autistic you know, because someone yeah, else sure. has said it, right? Yeah, sure, like, because um, there is a lot of stigma. So, yeah, that's a, that's a good point. Yeah, so I, I always try to make sure that someone has said it themselves somewhere or that um, that it's, like, in the book itself, like, in the published materials that are from them, you know, in some way they're saying, yes, I am autistic, uh, before I put them on my website and identify them that way because I feel like, yes, there are many reasons why someone might not wish to identify that way um, because there is still a lot of stigma about it. And I I'm always try to also, if I can, learn as much as I can, either read the plays themselves or, or at least get some insider information about them. Um, for example, Roderick Ford is an, an autistic British playwright and the I can't, I haven't been able to get access to his place because the, the play that in question that is written about an autistic character hasn't been published yet. But I spoke to the actress who did a, uh, a professional staged reading of it in, um, she's an Irish actress and I was able to speak to her and, and she's openly autistic. And so through that conversation, I felt confident in putting that information out there. Um, plus what I was able to read online ab about uh, Mr. Ford himself. So, right. um, you know, and it, but that's tricky. You know, you can't always get access to people, you know, and people just don't always want to talk. <laughs> yeah. And like the you were mentioning, like publishing earlier, like there's there are some new and upcoming publishers like Smith Scripps is one of them. Uh, Next Stage Press is another one that I've heard of that people enjoy. But like generally speaking, like historically, there haven't been that many play, play publishers that like unless they've been at a big regional theater or on Broadway that they're willing to publish their work. So it's it's too bad because like there are voices like this that should be accessible even well after they're produced. And it's, it's a shame, but um, 
it is. And some, some of the plays I was only able to get because I was able to make connections, personal connections with the playwrights and they were willing to send me unpublished copies of their script for my use in my research. Um, and I'm hoping to keep, you know, moving forward with that and keep um, gaining access to more and more scripts because I, I feel like one of the things that this website and this database can do is if, if a theater company or a school is looking to increase their diversity representation and they say, one of the things we wanna look for is neurodiversity and autistic representation, I wanna be able to say to people, go to this website, it will tell you what you can find. And eventually I want to not just have the plays that specifically are about autism. I also wanna include, like you said, you have a, a list of other plays that you've written and published. I'm hoping eventually to also include, you know, things like, and this playwright also offers these plays as well. They're available through this oh, publication. Um, it's just going to take time to get there, right? Yeah. Um, because I feel like that's really important. You know, our business theater is about networking. It's about making those relationships and yeah. those connections. And so, one of the things that the so I differentiate in in the world of autism between the autistic community and the autism community. The autistic community, those are people who are autistic. Those are people who want to listen to autistic voices. And uh, those are people who see autism not as a, solely as a medical condition, not as something to be overcome or to be treated or fixed. They see it as something that, yeah, it can be challenging, but it also is a, it's an integral part of one, that person's identity. Absolutely. And is not necessarily all bad. It, it can actually offer some really great positives as well. The autism community, this is where you get people like Autism Speaks, you get uh, neurotypical parents and caregivers who, who want to fix autism, who want to cure autism. This is the extreme versions of that or where you get things like bleach cures and oh um, you know, the, the, the Judge Rotenberg Center. I didn't, know that, I didn't even know that bleach was something that people tried to use on autism. I know that people have said without naming names, they're using that on COVID, but I never heard that about autism. That's, that's really yeah, no, crazy. It's, it's, it's been used on, on autistic people. The, um, then you get the, the Judge Rotenberg Center, which um, I, maybe you've seen the recent stories. Um, in 2020, uh, there was um, a court case that banned the use of electric shocks which the Judge Rotenberg Center is a school here in Massachusetts uh -huh. where electric shocks are used on the students, the, the residential and day students who go to that school, a lot of whom are autistic. Um, and they, this, this court case banned the use of them, but a recent court appeal overturned that ban and the school is now using them again. And this is very disturbing to people in the autistic community because this smacks of um, applied behavioral analysis in the earliest uh, days of it, which used um, not only electric shocks, but physical abuse and verbal abuse in order to try to make children comply with the desired behaviors. 
And so to see this being used in 2021 and here in Massachusetts um, is, it's disgusting and it's really disturbing. And um, it's one of the things that I, I really feel like we need to increase the concept of agency among autistic individuals because that's what's happening here. These, these students are not being given agency. There were reports of a student who was shocked in so many times they lost consciousness. And what triggered it was they refused to take their coat off fast enough. What? Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to let you finish the story. That's why there, I was staying quiet. But like, I mean, I really want to say like, first of all, 2020, it took that long for a judge to even try banning it. And now it's overturned in 2021. And we're not talking about the Deep South even. You said it's in your home state no, we're of talking Massachusetts. about Massachusetts. Which, in your home state of Massachusetts. Yeah, Jesus. Yeah, it's ridiculous that, the, that this is still happening. Legal. That it's legal. <laughs> like, it should go without saying that it's immoral, but like i yeah. mean we all know that that what is legal and what is moral is not always the same thing well duh but i mean i i guess that's not a duh to everyone out there but you know yeah. i would hope to our listeners like they would all agree that that's appalling and um yeah i mean i don't know like if maybe writing letters or something or like a petition or something would help there but are, like there are um places online where petitions have already been started and there are uh, I think letter writing campaigns um, I'd have to like look them up to find you some links but maybe I can send them to you after the podcast is over Absolutely. if you can find them I'll put them in the show notes yeah because it, it really is absolutely unconscionable to think that I mean these kinds of things shocks have been outlawed on animals so why are they still legal on humans no matter who that human is. Yeah, I mean, Jesus. Well, I um, mean, I'm sorry, go ahead. So, well, I just wanted to, to maybe try to transition back from that very dark place to um, to why this is so important. And well, it's not really transitioning back, it's just um, trying to bring it back to why this is so important. Yeah. One of the things that for me is so crucial about theater is that it does, provide a place where you can create empathy for people through the stories we tell. We can effectively, not for everyone, but you can change people's minds. You can change their hearts through narrative and through um, the, the experience of live theater. And that's why it's so important that what we're putting on stage isn't just a representation of autism, but an authentic one. And one of the things that I found in my research is that while there were approximately 30 plays that I found that had some connection to autism, an autistic character, autistic storyline, something along those lines, there were only six or seven playwrights who were autistic who were writing these stories. And the rest of the playwrights were neurotypical. And what I found was that a lot of the stories really were from the neurotypical caregiver's perspective of, oh, how horrible autism is and how much harder it makes my life. Um, rather than what does the autistic person feel? It was about what the neurotypical person felt. And often, 
the uh, the, the the autistic character, the neurodivergent character, is a secondary. They're a tool. They're being used to tell the story rather than the story being about them. And you don't really get that as much. Um, it's not completely universally so, but you don't get that really when you have an autistic playwright uh, telling the story. And I think that's true. And you see that 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 concept spread right across the parody uh, movement in theater right now, where people are saying, other people telling our stories is not representation. Right. And and the same is true about autism and about all of neurodiversity, which is much further beyond just autism. I mean, thinking about um, ADHD, ADHD, Tourette's, um, you know, uh, there are so many, and, and even the umbrella of neurodivergence itself is debatable um, because we still haven't fully, um, we still haven't fully uh, identified and defined what that umbrella means. And I think for some people it is larger than for others. But uh, for me, neurodivergence is having a brain that is wired differently than the expected uh, typical neurotypical brain. And um, I, and that's kind of a, a wide definition. There, there's so many things that, and we don't even understand all of the differences yet in the brain. We're just starting to really understand the brain in new and more definitive ways than we ever have before. So um, it's hard. And, you know, I think we're seeing autistic scientists finally being published. I think we're seeing autistic playwrights and authors um, being published. I think we're seeing, especially with uh, the the good side of the internet, is that it's possible to self-publish. It's possible to do a blog like this. It's possible to do a, a personal blog or um, have a, an on, an online personality of in a sense um, that that tells your story to the world. And you hope that people will stumble upon it and find you and listen to you. The downside is there are just as many people who are trying to create blogs which have an opposing perspective. And um, the tricky thing is how do we expect the world to differentiate between these two perspectives? Um, and also the fact that like, I know this from my my own work, like a lot of times it gets dismissed because it's self-produced or self-published as like, like I'm lucky enough to have a publisher now for my plays, but like generally speaking with productions, like as vanity productions, like there are people out there, if you go on the playwrights of Facebook group, like there's some people who dismiss it as vanity productions and that makes it harder too, doesn't it? Like, yeah, if you don't have the, the publication houses behind you, if you don't have um, an off-Broadway or a Broadway producing company behind you. Yeah, it, it, there is this elitism in our theater that we yeah. need to address and that I think we are starting to address. I think that one of the things the pandemic did was lay bare so much of the elitism that theater uh, still espouses and still is 
uh, is tied to because of the way we we finance theater because of the way we don't pay people in a lot of the fields a, a living wage and all of those things. Um, there are definitely things that we need to improve upon, but there's room now. I think there's room to hear the voices um, for the first time in a long time. People are starting to listen. And I think that's really crucial. And I was really excited that I was able to, to put my, uh, my thesis together at yeah. a time when that was happening. And and perhaps that's why it happened when it happened rather than 10 years ago. I, maybe it wouldn't have made such a difference sure. 10 years ago when people didn't care in general and had more preconceived notions that were negative about what it means to be autistic. Um, and I think I'm, I'm really, I am hopeful that at some point I'm able to publish more widely about uh, what I wrote in my thesis and to bring more attention to the database itself. Um, and that's one of the reasons I was really happy to come here because I think people need to know that that if they want to do that, where do you start? When I first started Googling plays with autistic character or plays about autism, I think the first sweep, I maybe got about eight plays. And for the longest time, I was under the like misperception that there were only eight plays out there because every time I Googled like different versions, that was all that kept coming up. And maybe that was the Google algorithm. I don't know. You know, that's the other thing that is is hard about doing everything online. And so, the more I searched, the and the more nuanced things that I searched, um, I started to pick up other things. From you know, I would find a book, and because I had looked at that book, something in my search algorithm would say, "You should also look at this." And suddenly, there's a play that has something that I want to look at. That has something to do with autism um and then there's also a ton of plays out there where people say it has something to do with autism and you go and you read it and you're like does it <laughs> um for example um there's a play uh, uh what's it called the i think it's called like for the boys or something like that it's like a play about Four young men who live in, a, I, I'm probably getting the name of the play wrong. Forgive me, I don't have it like right oh, here. Um, it's a play that has, it's about four young men who live in a residential, like supported um, community. And okay. they, like they have a, like a person who comes in and makes sure that they're okay. And each of them has some kind of mental health or developmental issue. And I've had it sold to me several times as a play about, autistic characters and when I read it I went well that's one interpretation but none of them are labeled that way and I could also see other diagnoses being applied here um and and that's the tricky thing too that I, I have I've, I've been really trying to address that as well because there are characters um someone who does a lot of Irish theater I've always thought that Rose Mundy from Dancing at Lunasa could very easily be interpreted as an autistic character. But there are so many other interpretations for her as well. Um, and I would also say someone that people might be more familiar with, um, Laura from The Glass Menagerie, could be interpreted as an autistic character. 
but there are also other interpretations of her that are equally as valid. And um, I do think though, that it would be nice to see an autistic led production that explored that. Yeah. Hey everyone, hope you're enjoying today's episode. This week's episode is sponsored by Living for the Cinema. Living for the Cinema is a podcast featuring reviews of movies from the past 50 years, hosted by Jeff Gershon, a cinema enthusiast of all genres who is passionate about discussing movies, directors, actors, composers, soundtracks, and cinematography from current movies and past movies from the last 50 years. New episodes drop twice a week on Tuesday and Thursday, and all movie reviews are approximately 15 minutes or less. To learn more, you can find Living for the Cinema on all major streaming platforms, and you can visit www.livingforthecinema.com. And now, please enjoy the rest of today's episode of Indie Art Today. Um, well, I do want to get into um, your presentation. You mentioned like the work you've been doing. You mentioned that there's a lot of elitism still in theater. I imagine some of those so-called elites like might have seen this work. You presented your work at the American College Theater Festival back in January. I believe the video is still on your website. Am I correct about that? Like, because it was it when is, I was there. Yeah, so the, the American College Theater Festival is mostly a student conference. Um, it Faculty do uh, come, um, but they're usually, um, it's, it's not really like the same kind of conference as when you present at a strictly academic conference because it is sure I mean like my college I, I never went when I was in college but I know that that was a program they had when I was doing my undergrad um I was the reason I was bringing up is I was wanting to ask like what was the reception to that did you have people come up to you and like give you like comments on it like was what was the feedback like on that the reception yeah so it was a little tricky because it was an online conference so there was not as much okay. um there was not as much opportunity to just like run into each other in the hallways as there normally would be. Um, but it was very well received. And that particular video was actually very specifically about making theater spaces more accessible to autistic and neurodivergent people who not as audience members, although, I mean, that's that work has, has I think been done in many cases. There's a lot of um, literature on relaxed performances and, and making theater spaces in the audience more accessible. But what I was doing with that particular presentation was trying to explain how you make the actors, the technical people, the designers, everyone who's involved in the rehearsal and performance, how do you make them feel like they can ex they can um, have equal access to the space because um, I, I'm sure you're you're probably familiar with this. You've produced your your work. Um, I think you've done some acting work in the past. Yes. Yeah, I haven't acted in years, but yes, I have been an actor before. So. Um, so, but you'd be aware that there are times when all of the sensory bombardment of being in a theater can overwhelm a person who has uh, neurodivergent. Or just being around like fellow actors like that's my experience like like i'm prob i used to be like you never know this by talking to me now but like back in the day i was like always the quietest person like sitting in a corner during the rehearsal process so like i totally get what you mean by that yeah 
Yeah, and and often there's nowhere to escape to, right? There's nowhere to go. No. Like, and if you like, if you peace out to the bathroom for a little too long, people start to question it, right? Um, and they follow you and try to find you. And so my one of my arguments was that we needed a space. We need to create spaces within theaters. And I don't think this is just for neurodivergent people. I think this is for anyone who needs sure. a moment, a quiet moment. Um, but I think we need to to try to find ways moving forward to create a space where people can retreat to um, in order to uh, decompress, in order to just have quiet, in order to um, focus on themselves for a moment rather than everyone else around them. And the, the things that we used to, I think, expect, which was a lot more quiet, for example, I, I, I'm quite a bit older and and I remember theaters being extremely quiet during the rehearsal process, like no one would ever talk. Yeah, you would think more people, neurodiverse or not, would want that just to get into character, but I guess not. So. Yeah, but nowadays I find that people, and even though they actually have devices in their hands with which they could communicate silently with the person next to them or across the room from them, they still have conversations out loud. <laughs> I never and, thought of it that way, but you're right. Wow. And it's really kind of frustrating because uh, for me personally, if I hear six conversations going on out in the audience space while I'm in a rehearsal, I really can't focus on what's going on on stage. It's too much sensory input for me. Yeah. And I imagine that has to be true for a lot of people, not, yeah. and not, maybe not even just neurodivergent people, but you know, just that's a lot of noise. That should just be a matter of like being professional more in theater, I guess, like. I agree, and and but I I find that it's not always, and yeah. um and that that's very frustrating for me. So I talked about how keeping things you know like not shouting suddenly across the room um, and startling people, or having power tools suddenly starting without notice, you know, somewhere in the space. Um, you know, hear that, technicians? No, I'm kidding. But you're right. <laughs> you're you're absolutely right, though. Sometimes you get it. it. It's like something is emergency. It needs to be fixed right away before it, it like hurts someone. But you got to give everyone the chance to either put on their ear defenders or leave the room if, if that's going to be a problem for them. Um, you know, and I think you would do that for if you had small children in the cast, you would probably do that. So why is someone who has a sensory issue any different? Yeah. Well, you're, I, I, I'm sorry, I, I, what I was going to ask next is, because um, you're also a professor, you teach theater in schools, and I was wondering to ask, like, whether it's, as you just were just describing about making a safe space, so to speak, for people who are neurodiverse, or increasing representation, or just in general, like the topic of neurodiversity in theater, like, what are the things that you tell your students, and what do you hear from them, like, what or what advice do you give to them on this topic? Like, like I don't know if there are any specific conversations you've had that like maybe you can talk about, but. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of those things where it's hard to bring in to conversations um, because often people aren't thinking about that particular part of representation. And because I, don't necessarily appear 
to be autistic in other people's eyes, often I get a lot of pushback. Um, and I'll be honest, there, until you sent me your bio, I didn't know you yourself were ide identified as autistic. I just assumed this was a topic you were interested in. So, yeah. Which is really, really common and really, really. Like, I um, hope you don't take offense to that, by the way. Like, I get that myself no. sometimes, too. Like so. I said, I mask like almost like it's second nature at this point, um, because I grew up at a time when masking was necessary. I don't know that I would have been able to grow up um and do what i do and get where i was able to go if i hadn't learned to mask very young i i think that growing up in the 1970s and 80s if i had displayed autistic behaviors without learning to mask and without um learning to 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 expect from other people uh the patterns of behaviors uh that they were going to uh, exhibit as well. I don't think I would have gotten where I got, and and I don't I don't think that's neither good or bad. I think it's it is what it is, and I think it has both good and bad uh, elements to it. Um, there are parts of me where I really wish that I could just let go of the mask and just be my like true autistic self everywhere I go, and um, and I wonder. <laughs> A lot of times what that would be like but yeah i know that like if i am exhausted if i'm overwhelmed if i'm really really tired and i'm starting to lose the mask in those situations that i'm often misunderstood and i often have to remove myself from a situation if i can to pull myself back together and pull the mask back on and straighten it so to speak in order to not be treated like something is wrong. Um, yeah. And I don't think that's a good thing. I think we need to make it easier. I think we need to make it more welcoming because masking is exhausting yeah. and it takes far more energy than, um, than is necessary to do these tasks. Um, but I think it's only now that you start to see people being brave enough to say enough is enough and I'm going to let this go. And that takes a lot of privilege too, you know, to, to be able to say I'm going to let go of my mask um, and, and deal with whatever the consequences are. That takes an awful lot of privilege to be able to do that um, or bravery or both. Um, and it's not always the safest thing to do. You can really find a lot of really negative repercussions from yeah, that. I know exactly um, what you mean. Cause like I was born, I was born in the nineties. I grew up in the two thousands. So I'm, I'm old enough to remember, maybe some people still do it today in schools. I don't know, but like people would use the word autistic as if it were the same as being mentally retarded. And you know, the word, that word I know has its own negative connotations and such, but yeah. like the point being that like we were dumb, we couldn't think for ourselves. Exactly. Yeah. And so I, it wasn't until I got to around college that I was being openly autistic. So like, I mean, you know, I've kind of, I don't want to say like when I'm like a producer, for example, or whatever, like, I don't want to say I play a character, but I do kind of have had to drill into my head. Like, you know, nobody wants to be around someone who's depressed all the time. Nobody wants to be around someone who's like, like, 
is always keeping their thoughts in their head, even though as much as I would like to do that at a lot of times, so like, you know, that, I don't really have a question. I just wanted to say that as like a follow-up because I, I totally get what you mean. And um, I hope more people, like maybe there's more acceptance and maybe more people will be willing to share their own thoughts. I don't know, like. I'm, so I'm hoping. I'd like to think, be- I'd like to think we're two examples right here of people who are more than willing to talk freely about these sorts of things. Like masking aside, like, like, and I don't mean masking as in like, acting per se that's a whole different situation like because that could require a mask not a literal sometimes literally a mask but you know if you're a mime or something but like yeah i mean i think i think it is i'm glad you're talking about this because in your field because i think authenticity and the freedom to be authentic is important so um yeah and that brings me to one of the other things is that there are so few openly autistic actors getting work um and you know the i think mickey rowe is one of the only people uh who's ever played christopher right in in curious incident right i believe he's still the only openly autistic actor to have played that in a professional production um i i could be wrong if somebody else knows of another person please tell me um he's the only one i've heard of so you know and um there's another play called uncommon sense which employed um, an autistic actor, Andrew Duff, in in a role. And that was done, I think, off-Broadway. And, um, but really and truly there, I mean, there aren't a lot of theatrical roles where you're you're seeing an openly autistic actor get the autistic role. Um, And so, in a world where we're talking about parity, in a world where we're saying, you know, um, maybe a transgender actor should play the transgender role. Maybe the, um, you know, the the person whose ethnicity matches the character should play that role. Then shouldn't we also be saying maybe the person whose neurodivergency matches the character should also play that role? Um, and, you know, I think that's really where I'm coming from. And I, I hope that that doesn't always, I, I really hope we get to the point where it's not about saying you can only play your own identity. I hope we get to a point where there's so much parity and so much empathy and so much agency for everyone that we can get back to a place where without being disrespectful, we have more um we have more people playing something that there maybe aren't exclusively if yeah. that makes sense i don't yeah, it does um, i don't want it to be disrespectful in the way we have been in the past you know sure. with things like blackface and yellow face and and all kinds of horrific uh interpretations of things um right. i think it should always remain respectful and i think that that what that means changes and evolves over time but i i hope that you know we eventually like i don't have a problem with someone who isn't autistic playing an autistic person ever i just think right now when we're talking about making sure that people are getting work when we're talking about making sure that representation is authentic because it hasn't been that this is the time to say yes if you are playing if you're portraying an autistic character on stage in this production 
you really should go out of your way to find an autistic actor for that production, hmm. for that role. Yeah, and that's, I will say as a producer, that's been something I've been, I've struggled with in the past, like, because it is hard to find those people. And I actually do have a question I want to come back to, but I, before that, I actually do have a, something I might want to ask you about, like, that I might want to make sure I ask before I forget, like, um, there's a piece you wrote that um, I want to make sure I get the exact name of it because it's I thought it was a very interesting piece that sort of touches on like stereotypes among neurodiverse people um the title is he's actually got a girlfriend which I thought was very interesting like you know based on my own perspectives and I was wondering like how based on your research in there like and not just in the context of romantic relationships but just generally speaking like how what have you learned is and isn't effective in terms of breaking down the stereotypes of autism? Because I met, we've talked about autism speaks, we've talked about um, shock therapy even, which even I didn't realize was as prominent as it is today. Like I learned that from you today. And I was wondering, what do you think is and isn't effective, like based on your research and just your experience in terms of breaking down these stereotypes? Because like something that I've been criticized for with my play is that like, they don't think it's, their idea it doesn't represent their idea of what's being on the spectrum is like and despite the fact that i myself am on the spectrum so and i think and it's crazy because like i feel like if people didn't have these stereotypes in their head maybe things would be different for my play and anyway i'm kind of just blabbling on but i, I want to hear what you think no thank you for giving me a chance to to kind of put my thoughts together actually <laughs> um so so the title of that piece, and it was it was written to be presented at a conference on um, on on perceptions of love um, and and non traditional perceptions of love, and um, so I took it from the perspective of, of a lot of autistic characters that are out there are written to be asexual and aromantic, and and actually there are some characters for whom when they seek romance or when they seek a sexual encounter um, or just engage in it, even if they didn't seek it, if they just engage in it, there is this uh, trope that, that in doing so they endanger themselves and there's often a serious consequence to doing that. And actually I can pull, point to Rose Monday, Monday from Dancing at Lunasa when she seeks a romantic relationship with Danny Bradley eventually what happens to her is she uh, ends up leaving home and becoming a drunk homeless person who her her nephew finds many many years later about to die and it's this huge tragic ending for her and all because she dared to seek romantic uh relationship for herself right and then you go there's another irish play called uh Danty dan which is about an autistic uh, a teenager and or the title character rather is an autistic teenager and he is seduced and manipulated by another teenage character in the play into a sexual relationship and then he is murdered by her sorry about the spoiler alert <laughs> but, but essentially you see these these patterns emerging of either you are like too young to have it or just even as an older person you are considered not to have the kind of agency or the kind of uh, intelligence 
to be able to have a relationship that is either romantic or sexual in, in nature, or if you attempt it, there are serious, deadly, horrific, scary consequences for it. And I really found that to be a problematic trope in the theater literature that I was reading. And so um, that, um, the title of that, by the way, he has, he's actually got a girlfriend. That's a quote that was said to me about one of my children when um, in middle school, they had a relationship with someone mm -hmm. and it was a middle school relationship. It was not any like- Still counts. It does count, but it was like, it wasn't like, you know, he's getting, but it, it was said to me with such condescension and such surprise and just like it was like it was like the first time they this teacher and this was said to me by a teacher by the way a special education teacher jesus and i'm sitting there going how do i respond to this without um being an asshole yes because i'm sitting there going why is that such a surprise to you that a 13 year old has a girlfriend? <laughs> I'm, I mean, really and truly, the, that's the age when a lot of children have their first crush or their first relationship if it's mutual. Yeah. Um, you know, and it's why is the fact that my child is autistic, why does that make any difference as to? whether or not they're capable of having a crush and having it returned. I mean, I really, I could not even, I, I really had trouble actually responding to that in that moment. I really struggled with like, what do I say to this person? And it's- Well, you, just, with, well you did respond with this paper, I guess. So if, <laughs> yeah, that if that teacher is out there coming across this podcast. Yeah. It is. And, I'm kidding. But no, I just, I really, really felt, I felt kind of insulted, to yeah. be honest with you. I'd be that. insulted. And, um, you know, and, and then I, the number of people, I'm in a Facebook group that is, I won't name it, but it is for autistic mothers. And right. um, it is one of the most supportive groups that I've ever been a part of on the internet. We just very few of us know each other in real life it's an international group and um but one of us posts something and we are all right there for the for that person you know to to support happy things to support challenging things to support um you know how in like i need advice what what do you think would work here all of these things it is you know and and all of these people are parents you know, they have had a relationship at some point in order to become parents, you know, yeah. so the, the idea that somehow an, an autistic person is not capable or should be seen as asexual or aromantic, um, I think it's just, it's a stereotype that has long since passed its day and needs to be removed yeah. from our vocabulary. Um, and it's not that, it's not that it doesn't exist, because of course there, there are people who are asexual and aromantic who are parts of every part of our lives, that that's a, a valid identity and as that's well. not just autism. Like you could be neurotypical and still be asexual. Yes, and, but, but to 
in like to enforce the stereotype on a specific population um, unfairly and and as a result of not seeing them as fully realized humans is the problem. Uh, and that's where I, I get angry about that concept because um, you know, often we are infantilized. Often we are, um, we're told we don't know what we're talking about. Um, often we're told um, that our perspectives are incorrect. And the more we're open about our autism, the more likely that is to happen, I think. And so, yeah, it's really, really tricky to, um, to deal with those kinds of representations in theater. And th there are a lot of plays that do that, um, either through the fact that the autistic characters are always children in, in a lot of plays. Right. Or- Or teenagers. Or teenagers. Um, but the teenagers are usually presented as being less mature than their peers. Um, in whatever way you want to take that. Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if you've seen it, but there's the Netflix series Atypical, which, you know, isn't the worst series I've ever seen, but the main character in that, like, like first of all, I'm sure you think is problematic because the actor who plays him is neurotypical, but, like, you know, he's basically depicted, like, as having the mentality of, like, I don't know, like, under the age of 10, like, obsessed with things like penguins and such, like, so, like, there is a lot of that. It's not that, it, and I know plenty of adults who have those kinds of obsessions. Who yeah, are no, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but like, yeah, I but guess that was a bad like, example, but just generally speaking, like. But it is used as like a reason to assign the immaturity viewpoint to us or perspective to us. And, um, you know, there, but I just, I, I think that comes too from a lot of our toxic um, masculinity, like, um, you know, like, why do we tell children at like starting at like age five or six that like carrying a stuffed animal is babyish? Yeah. And, 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 you know, say, you know, like they still have them on their bed at night, but they, they're not allowed to take them out into the public. Right. And, and that I think, let me tell you something. Like, I think that is an example of specific bigotry toward neurodiverse people. Cause I have an adult friend. I won't say his name because I don't know if you want me to do that on this podcast, but I have an adult friend who I work with in theater who in his apartment has a bunch of like stuffed animals of like Yoda and Darth Vader and things like that. So like, and he's like neurotypicals, uh, keep in mind. So like, and nobody says that about him. So. Yeah. Oh no, because for him, it's just an interest. Yeah. You know, and, and it's his collection. Right. <laughs> but, but the second that that happens to an autistic person, suddenly it is their obsession. It's their special interest which rather than just their interest and i i kind of and maybe it's because i grew up at a time when special education was a dirty word um you know and it was where you sent the bad kids and it was where you sent the kids who couldn't behave um maybe that's where i don't like the word special in that connotation yeah. but um but yeah it's a really challenging Thing where we we just have this very I think toxic view of what it looks like to be an adult, and we have this um, very um, rigid expect set of expectations for behaviors mm -hmm. um, that are often very harmful, right? To not just to neurodivergent people, but to everyone. 
Um, because I mean, if you're a kid, like a teenager even, and going to the dentist is scary, right? Taking a little stuffed animal to hold on your lap and just like, you know, pet the stuffed animal and, and you know, hold and squeeze it while you're going through something that might be potentially uh, a little scary and even traumatic can make all the difference between being able to get through it or not being able to get through it. Um, and, you know, I, I just think we need to stop demonizing behaviors uh, that aren't harmful. Mm -hmm. um, well, I think this is a good segue into um, the last question before we get to the final segment of this interview that I wanted to ask, which is, um, you know, we've talked about like, playwrights on the spectrum and how there haven't been as many in the past as maybe there are now and how there's still not that many. We've talked about the need for more actors who are openly autistic. I've said myself, like, I would like to find more of them for my works. Um, we might have, there's a chance, Jenna, that we might have some people listening who are on the spectrum, but are still like, for whatever reason or another, in the closet, for lack of better terminology. And I wanted to ask for those artists who are on the spectrum who might be listening, what's your message to them? Like, like what, what do you think they should do in terms of using their voices? I think if you're not ready to come out, that's okay. But I think you can still use your voice to support the community and to support those who are out. Um, I think you can say, if you come up into a, a situation where you know that representation is being done inappropriately, there are resources. Instead of outing yourself, you can just point people to resources. Um, you could say, you know, here's this blogger I know who is openly autistic and talks about this specific issue and provides great support and, and facts about why we should be doing things differently. You know, there are ways to go about supporting the community and the identity without outing yourself if you really don't feel comfortable doing that yet. And, and I think we have to support. If someone is not ready to come out yet, it's just like the same with any other identity that might be closeted. We have to support people deciding to stay where they are and not outing themselves. But it doesn't mean you can't be supportive of the, of the movement forward with, you know, and you can do that safely without outing yourself. Very well said. Um, well, Jenna, I, if it's okay with you, I like to end these interviews with a fun little speed round of 10 quick questions and 10 quick answers. Is that okay with you? I'll do my best. <laughs> all I'm asking for to do your best um favorite rehearsal memory oh see this is why I can't do things quickly <laughs> um whatever the first thing that comes to mind favorite rehearsal memory um I think it's just it's it's not one memory but it's laughter it's it's um it's finding the the just the right perspective just the right delivery and and seeing the look in your scene partner's eyes that knows, yes, I know where you're going and I'm following or, or follow me instead, you know, like I, I just, rehearsals to me are, are really incredible experiences. Hmm. Name a famous person, dead or alive, who you'd love to have dinner with. 
Audrey Hepburn. That's a good one. When reading a script, what stands out to you the most in terms of judging its quality, plot, characters, or dialogue? Probably characters. Okay. Um, I think I really look for the authentic, the authenticity of a character. Hmm. Name a play that you think everyone should watch at least once before they die. Hmm. So many to choose from. Um, wow, I don't know if I could choose a single one. There's so many. I just think go to the theater, really and truly. Okay. Just go to the theater. Like, don't think of it as something to avoid or something boring. Just, I mean, yeah, there are bad plays, but like, just go. <laughs> like, there's so much that like people don't ever see. Hmm. Fair enough. I mean, we have a vaccine out there, everyone. Theaters are reopening. What are you waiting for? So. Point. your mask on but go <laughs> <laughs> um what's the best advice you've ever received to trust myself what's the worst advice you've ever received um not to speak up when i mm. see something wrong that's, that's a good choice yeah i agree favorite hobby that has nothing to do with theater Baking. Okay, cool. Although occasionally I've been known to bake things for props, like <laughs> food props. <laughs> if you could change just one thing about the world, what would you change? I think I would remove the ability to have cognitive dissonance. Mm. Um, I don't know if you know what that is, but so cognitive dissonance is when you believe something and no matter what you're presented with as mm -hmm. proof of the opposite that you still believe what you believed in mm -hmm. the first place so you like a better understanding between other people that's what you're saying i would like people to be more open-minded and more uh, willing to consider other perceptions and other viewpoints um, and to consider facts yeah we need a lot of that, definitely. We need people to consider more facts, especially, yeah. yeah. Um, if someone wrote a play based on your life, what would it be called? Wow, that's a really good question, but I have <laughs> no idea. Um, I mean, I used to say, and this is partly true, that the play Dancing at Lunasa is my childhood. Okay. Um, and that I was, for all intents and pur purposes, the character of the invisible boy, uh, although I'm not a boy. Um, there's a lot of that play that that mirrors my childhood. Um, but what would I say about my current life? I mean, doesn't have to be your current life. It could be broadly speaking. Or your past. Yeah, I don't. trying to think of, of of like how I would characterize it I guess just like maybe I would call it perseverance perseverance is a good one okay that's cool and lastly 10 years from now Jenna Lorenko will be Ooh. Hmm. 
10 years from now, Jenna Lorenko will be a published author mm. and will be more established in her career. I don't, I mean, it's really hard to no, say. No, that's, that's a good answer. That's a good answer. Yeah. Um, well, when you are a published author, I look forward to purchasing and reading your book. I appreciate you being here, Jenna. And for our listeners who would like to learn more about Jenna and her work, you can visit www.jennalorenko.com. And don't forget, you can find us on social media at Indie Art Today if you aren't following us already. I want to thank Jenna Lorenko for being our guest this week. And until next week, I'm Anthony Piccioni, and thank you for listening to Indie Art Today.